Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, the Compulsive Reader, and today's guest is Ross Duncan. Ross, welcome. Thanks, Maggie. Ross is the author of All Those Bright Crosses, which was published by Picador in July. And in addition to being a novelist, Ross is a lawyer with the ABC, a freelance journalist, and a teacher of media law at the University of Technology, Sydney. All Those Bright Crosses is his debut novel. And I'll be asking Ross today some questions about his work, but I thought it might be nice to begin by listening to Ross read us from the novel, uh, read to us from his novel. Um, Ross. Yeah, thanks, Maggie. Um, yes, I thought I'd just read um, the end of a section that comes very early in the novel. Um, it's um, where my character, main character, Martin Flint, is um, sitting in front of a poker machine. He's um, developed a fairly serious gambling addiction as a result of... Um, suffering grief and guilt over the loss of his young daughter and uh, he seeks some solace in the comfort of um, uh, a poker machine or I think uh, in the States they call them slot machines and this particular machine is called um, the Pillars of Wisdom and um, where this section starts um, there's a guy who works in the club where he's playing the machine um, watching over him, uh, a guy called Kevin and it begins with a line of dialogue from him and it goes, uh, should have been here this afternoon he said paid out a big one on Paradise Gold, some bloke I've never seen in here before. I don't want to know, I said. I was not in the mood for conversation, never was when I was playing, and especially when it wasn't going well. It was always at those times, though, that Kevin would wander over and want to chat. There was malice in his habit, I think. He liked to see me lose. It seemed to comfort him somehow. I imagine it confirmed his own defeatist view of the world. Kevin had a healthy mane of orange hair and blotchy orange freckles. A cheeky boyish face for a man, I guess, was in his late 40s. The kind of face I suspected women probably still fell for easily. One that brought out the girl and mother in them at the same time. But I knew nothing about him, really, or his life beyond the club. Once or twice we'd passed each other on the street, and we both looked the other way, as if embarrassed by the circumstances of our acquaintance. Every dog had his day, Socrates, Kevin said. He knew my real name, had written it countless times on the payout sheets, but he always called me Socrates. It was his attempt at irony, a reference to the pillars of wisdom machine, and the fact that he thought I was a fool. But he needed me too, I knew. I paid his wages. The club was clearly struggling. It belonged to an era when working men lived in the inner city, when trade unions were strong. It urgently needed to reinvent itself to survive, but seemed to have run out of ideas. Poker machines were its only life support and reckless big spenders like me. A monkey in a clown suit, the wild symbol, landed on the centre row next to three elephants. 500 credits clicked up. I reached forward, picked up my whiskey glass and took a sip, moderately satisfied. Kevin stood behind me, looking on in silence. I decided to play single line only, maximum bet for a couple of spins. It was part of my strategy, varying the method of betting occasionally believing that could disrupt the machine's internal rhythm, make it do things it wasn't programmed to do. Three monkeys landed on the centre row, a fourth dropped to the bottom line. Bummer, Kevin said. I turned around and glared at him. I'm not bothering you, am I, he said. Don't exactly have a lot to do. It's dead in here tonight. It's all right, I said. I just need to concentrate, you know. Concentrate, he said. Right, I suppose it does take concentration. A machine went off in the next row to a tune that vaguely resembled the Marseillaise. Anyway, sounds like you're wanted, I said. Yeah, no rest for the wicked, eh? Good luck. 
There were nights when I knew I would win. It was not a thing I could explain, but I felt it as a firmness in my bones, tautness in my muscles, a tingle on the lips. Everything connected, flowing, my senses heightened. A confidence that I could do nothing wrong. The machine felt vibrant and warm at those times, humming like a finely tuned racing car, the screen somehow clearer, the symbol shinier. On those nights I had won obscene amounts of money, $2,000, $3,000, five grand one night, played down another 500 then packed it in, suppressed a smug grin as Kevin counted out the cash and slapped it in my hand. That night I took a cab home, sitting lopsided on the wallet, bulging in my back pocket. I imagined it to be the same feeling an athlete has when all the hours of training and working out and eating the right foods and disciplining the mind and something else, some mysterious factor, come together. And there were nights when I knew nothing would go right, that I was destined to lose. Reason and common sense left them in the club's foyer when I signed in to walk away, to be grateful for the good nights. There had been too many of the bad nights lately, and the only good thing about the bad nights was knowing they wouldn't last forever. I was familiar with the statistics, the odds stacked heavily in favour of the house, had read the book debunking the pokey player's cherished myths and superstitions. It all washed over me. We trust what we experience or choose to ignore it. All up, I was $650 down now, not counting the winnings I'd already poured back in. I put in my last 50. The machine would either come good now or I was fucked anyway. It didn't matter. Winning, losing, it was all the same in a way and not really about either. It was never ever about the money, except that money bought me time. Time to be in a place where nothing that did matter could reach me, where the question of what to do, how to spend my time, was simple, clear, uncomplicated, where I didn't need to think. There was no clock in the club, but I knew Angelica would already be at the restaurant waiting for me. I fumbled in my pocket, found a $2 and a $1 coin, enough for the train fare. Definitely time to give it away now, but then, but then the only thing worse than conceding defeat was parting. It made me anxious. What if the machine was just about to come good? The odds for that happening must be high. And what if as soon as I left, some freeloader hopped on? Anything could happen when you weren't around. No, don't think about it. Just go. There is always tomorrow. I went over to the ATM, punched in my number. Withdrawal, credit, $100, okay. The machine word, I waited. Sorry, insufficient funds. I stared at the words on the screen, trying to take them in. I placed my hands on the machine. Obviously, there was some mistake. I had a $20,000 limit on my credit card. I had the monthly statement sent to my work address. Tore them up as soon as they arrived without opening an envelope. I couldn't remember when I had last dared to check the balance. But what had it been then? In debt five, maybe 10000 at most. I tried again. Sorry, insufficient funds. The blood began to drain from my head and I felt myself falling. I glanced around the room, clasped one hand to my chest. There seemed to be no air. Kevin was leaning on the bar watching me. He walked over. Problem? It's nothing. I rubbed my hands over my face, shook my head. I retrieved the card and wandered dazed back across the room. The floor tilted, fell away from me and the poker machine area seemed to spin and tumble like some amusement park thrill ride. Flashing coloured lights and happy tunes, mocking, jeering. I bumped my leg on the corner of a table, pushed past someone standing in my way. I needed to get out, needed to breathe. I looked around behind me. Kevin was holding his clipboard to his chest, frowning at me. I stumbled down the stairs, gripping the handrail. 
I stood under the awning at the entrance to the club, just out of reach of the rain sheeting across the laneway. When had it started to rain? I lit a cigarette, crossed my arm, shuddered. I paced about, not realising for a while that I kept triggering the automatic sliding doors behind me. The rain eventually eased a little and I stepped out onto the footpath. I walked but had no idea where I was going. It was as if I was suddenly in a foreign city. I didn't get as far as the first corner before another downpour began. I pressed on, hands scrunched inside my jacket pockets, huddled against the wind. Water droplets splattered on my spectacles. Condensation fogged the lenses, blinding me. A crippling pain gripped my chest. A self-inflicted pain, I realised, from which there was no relief. I stood on the corner of Broadway watching the traffic flash by, transfixed by the dazzle of headlights in the rain. I wished it was me in one of those cars or sitting on one of the buses. I thought about throwing myself in front of a bus or a truck, decided against it. I didn't want to kill myself. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. I realised the sock on my right foot was soaking wet, that there must have been a hole in my shoe. I wandered for a while through that transient end of town, past the sex shops and gun stores, the cheap hotels and backpacker hostels. I needed to call Angelica, but didn't have enough money for that and the train fare. I made my way to Central, entered the long tunnel that leads to the platforms. The only sounds were the echoing squeak of my sodden footsteps on the tiles and the mournful wailing of a busker somewhere up ahead. Mm. I'm glad you chose that passage to read. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's, that's very powerful. I, I, you know, really, um, that's the, the rock bottom moment. And I guess um, that's something that perhaps any addict um, would be familiar with. Talk to me yeah. a bit about, about that. Yes, I think that's right. Look, I, um, I, I think, um, you know, in Martin's case, um, and, and I think probably with a lot of problem gamblers, um, it's never about the money. It's never about um, how much money you win. It's often about other things. And I think in Martin's case, it's, it's a way of escaping from or, or trying to cope with his, his grief and, and guilt. And, and I think it's about, uh, and Martin reflects on this in the novel, that it's about being in a, in a place, in a, in a space where... Um, he uh, is, as it were, cocooned in the world where, you know, the, uh, the um, emotions and the, the harder sort of feelings in life that he's trying to deal with can't penetrate him and uh, he's immune from that in that, uh, that little world, yeah. And that moment when he says, you know, I don't, I don't want to commit suicide, I just don't want to be alive anymore, um, you know, that sense of, uh, I guess, self-immolation. Yes. Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think he's 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 really you know trapped. I mean, he's 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 hit a wall, and um, he um, you know he 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 does sort of want to want to go on as it were, but um, can't see a way out. He's just really hit that that rock bottom, I suppose, as, as gamblers talk about. And um, you know, where to from here? He can't. Uh, he doesn't have any money left. He can't. Uh, he can't try and gamble his way out of it. Um, um, but um, to try and climb his way out of it just seems impossible. But it's interesting in that particular passage, and I, I can recall thinking this when I was reading it, um, there is a bit in there that um, hints at the fact that this kind of gambling, the, you know, the big flashy Vegas-style machines is, is on, the way, uh, on the wane, and that uh, somebody like Martin is really um, an anomaly. But is that true? It, it looks like it's getting stronger and stronger when you read the papers, at least. Yeah, look, I, I think um, I, I think there's a bit of a, um, a myth, if you like, or, or a conception that um, you know the sort of people who, who play poker machines in this country, anyway, are either you know the flashy, well-heeled gamblers who go to the casinos, or um, you know old-age pension 
Christians who, who go to the clubs, but I, I think it, it cuts across the community and, um, you know, there are a lot of people, um, you know, quite, you know, educated, professional, middle-class people with very serious gambling problems and, and poker machines seem to be a, a particular um, lure for them. They seem to have a, a certain magnetic um, hook for people. Um, yeah. Mm. Now, um, there's a point in the book fairly uh, late on when Martin in, in Fiji writes down what, it, what becomes the title of the book. Um, he actually writes the words, all those bright crosses in his notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a quote directly from his research. It's, it's actually quite different from what he's reading. Is that a hint that um, the novel itself is effectively Martin's found treasure? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure um, uh, about that. I, I think it perhaps reflects the fact that um, you know um, the, the the treasure hunt for Martin uh, is really about something else. Um, you know, like he's gambling, it's not about the money. It's really a, a sort of journey of uh, of self discovery, and that um, he's taking himself to Fiji and, and being in Fiji and uh, having the treasure uh, hunt and his research into it is really a bit of a pretext or rationalisation for being able to put himself in that space where um, he's, he's a bit distant from his, his real life, if you like, and, uh, and his past, and he's got a bit of time to, to try and sort things out, although he's, he's only often dimly aware, I think, uh, for a long time of what it is that he needs to, uh, to work out in, in order to be able to you know, move forward in his life. So, so I, I almost, um, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I almost saw the novel itself as being Martin's book. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I guess you can look at it that way. Uh, um, certainly, Martin uh, entertains um, fantasies that you know, if he if he doesn't find treasure, at least he might find something in the in the story of the treasure that no one else has. That um, um, some piece of the puzzle that he might be able to to turn into a book. And um, I, I guess, yeah, I guess I haven't really looked at it that way before, but I guess you could see the book, or at least Martin's story, as being um, the treasure itself. But given that the savage treasure, of course, is, is Martin's biggest gamble of all, um, his biggest flashing light um, pillars of wisdom, um, where do you see his transformation occurring um, as he develops through the book? Um, yeah, the reader I, does feel that he transforms, for sh- certainly, but, but where would you pinpoint it? Um, look, I, 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 I think it comes gradually, and... Uh, um, and as I say, I think for a long time he's only dimly aware of it. But I think it probably comes at the point where um, he decides to um, to act in relation to um, uh, the con man character, uh, Lester Delane, um, because he could just um, he could just simply walk away and um, and go back to Sydney and um, you know leave everyone to it. But um, I think uh, that's the point where he realises that. Um, a lot of things in, in, in his life aren't in control and um, he's, he's very much a control freak like a, lot of, like a lot of gamblers, I think, despite the wild risks they take. And uh, um, I think it's at that point, really, where um, he realises that a lot of life uh, isn't in his control, but nevertheless, he needs to, uh, he needs to act and he, he needs to uh, take steps. Mm. Now, tell me a bit about Lester. Um, from a political perspective, do you see him a bit um, uh, as being maybe a parallel to the government, feeding off the gambler's weakness, making money from illicit schemes and poker machines? Um, well, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it as well. I, um, I, I, I think Lester's probably representative of um, uh, you know, all sorts of, of people and, and possibly institutions that, um, uh, that, that feed off others and, and exploit others. Um, I guess I didn't really see it as a, as a, him as a sort of metaphor for 
for governments, um, you know, extracting revenue from from the addiction of gamblers. Um, but um, I saw him more, I guess, as um, uh, you know, he's 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 a character, the sort of person, and there's you know quite a few of them around, I think, who um who wash up in places like Fiji and um, really exploit um, the country and 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 the people, and um, often somehow manage to uh, manage to get away with it. And um, I think there's also a a bit of a parallels between Martin and, and the Lester character because Lester's an out-and-out fraud and, and con man, and uh, I guess I was interested in exploring um, the comparison between someone like that and someone like Martin, or, mm. or, or people generally who often, I think, feel that some, somehow we're fraudulent. You know, that uh, we're not as uh, <laughs> we're not as capable or talented, um, and so on as, as as others would have us believe, and we have a sense of our own. Fraudulence and, and Martin, you know, he's he's been secretive and lied about his gambling. So, I guess I was interested in exploring what's the difference between an out and out fraud like Lester and uh, and the rest of us, I guess. Mm. And and talk to me about the parallels too between Martin and, and Tabua, the the insecurity again, that whole sense of self-immolation. Yeah, well, certainly, I, I, you know, the the one thing that they they have in common and, and perhaps draws them to each other is is their self-destructiveness. Um, you know, uh, Tambu is a, a young uh, um, Fijian woman, and uh, basically part of um, the the urban underclass of, of Suva with not too many hopes or prospects, and um, you know, uh, um, engages in uh, sort of physical abuse and sort of crazy drunkenness and, and so on. And um, I guess there's a parallel there with um, you know, Martin's own self-destructiveness, and that's something that that draws them together. But um, there's also, I think, a, a lot of ambivalence uh, in their relationship. Um, they're thrown together, but there are you know, obvious obvious um, problems and difficulties of, of differences of you know class and culture and age and so on. And um, I think partly I was interested in exploring there, you know, whether two people like that could have a relationship or, or could have a relationship that was more than than just Exploitative, you know, whether there was something there at some basic human level that um, that um, you know could could bring them together, that that wasn't just, if you like, the um, the rich white man in Fiji exploiting the you know the young white girl from a developing world. And, and could is it is it reading too much to also see them as perhaps being Australia and Fiji, in that sense, the the, the, the uh, relationship between the two countries. Yeah, look, um, it, it may be reading too much. I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, sort of draw too much of, of a metaphor there. But I think um, certainly Martin has a, uh, you know, a, an urge and a, a tendency to want to want to rescue Tambour in some way, mm. and um, and and finds himself sort of frustrated by that to some extent because um, Tambour is quite quite a willful young woman and uh, uh, insists on on doing things her own way. Um, and I guess you could draw some connection there between the relationship between Australia and Fiji. Um, uh, Fiji is obviously very, you know, uh, dependent in, in in lots of ways economically and so on on places like Australia. And um, Australia, um, you know, provides aid and so on, but also wants to, um, you know, have a say in um, in how Fiji should should run itself and and be. And uh, um, I think there's you know, there's, there's there's a sort of degree of resentment among Fijians about that. You know, that um, no one likes to be dependent, I suppose. And whilst aid and skills and knowledge and expertise from outside are welcome, um, there's uh, you know quite a quite a proper, I think, um, insistence on uh, well, you know, we we want to we want to do things and work things out in our own way. Mm. 
Now, tell me a little bit about how the book came about, the the origins of the story, and um, you know how you found yourself in the process of, I guess, taking this interest and turning it into a full fledged novel. You know, there were basically two strands. I guess I'd um, um, about five years ago I was working on um, a series of short stories, and um, uh, it seemed to be the case that although the stories were very different and the, the characters were the main characters were different, you know, male and female and so on. Um, there was this persistent voice, um, which um, was really the voice of, of Martin Flint, I think. Um, and um, I, I think I came to see that um, there was perhaps a bigger story here um, to tell um, through that voice and, um, and that character. And at about the same time, I... Um, uh, developed an interest in, in, in Fiji and went there for a bit of a holiday but um, have been back several times since and you know spent stretches of several months there and I it was a place I never really thought much about uh, at all before and um, even though it's only you know four hours plane ride from 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 Australia um, and just was completely seduced by Fiji but also became very interested in the history and culture and um, uh, particularly that period nearly 19th century of the the first contact between um, Fijians and, and Europeans when trading ships were, were plying with the Pacific. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and, and I spent a lot of time in, in Suva as well and I'm fascinated by the diverse, uh, rich and, and transient culture that was, uh, that was there and um, thought, you know, why, why has no one or you know, hardly anyone written about this before or because it seemed to be material that was rich for rich for fiction. Mm. Now, um, do, do you feel that there's a morality underpinning the book? Um, maybe the notion of truth versus, you know, that, that what you talked about before, fraud versus, uh, I guess, honesty? Yeah, look, I, I think that's that certainly runs through it. I mean, I'm interested in exploring it. I don't know, um, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to, to moralise about anything in particular. It's not, a, I don't think, an anti-gambling tract or, or anything like that. Mm. But um, I guess I'm interested in, in exploring, um, you know, notions of, of truth and uh, authenticity and, um, um, you know, what it, what it means to act as a, as, as a decent human being, I suppose. And, um, but um, more so the problem, I think, that um, you know, one, one is only ever armed with a certain amount of ammunition in terms of knowledge and information that, that, that one acts on um, and one takes to be the truth. But um, uh, it often turns out that there are you know, bits of the picture that, 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 that one's not aware of. Mm. Now, um, one of the interesting aspects of the book is that um, there's a point at which um, I guess we get the hint that Martin isn't necessarily to blame for, for his daughter Callie's death. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the book, an awful lot is still left unsaid. We, we, basically, these things are only hinted at. Were you tempted to finish telling the story, or did you finish telling it in one of your short stories? Um, um, is there a clear conclusion in mind? Yeah, look, um, I, um, there, there, were, there were certainly people who, who urged me to, um, to finish it and get Martin back to Sydney and, and, and you know, tie it up with, with some neat resolution in a, in a nice, rib, uh, nice, uh, nice ribbon, but um, I was reluctant to, to do that, um, mm. partly because, I, 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 you know, personally I don't think life's like that. You know, I, I don't think it has neat resolutions, and particularly in the context of the theme of, of grief that, that, that Martin's trying to deal with. Um, I think what happens is, is we become 
you know, as time goes on and um, we become better able to, to deal with things like grief, but um, I'm very suspicious of um, notions of closure or, uh, <laughs> you know... Happily uh, ever after. Yeah, happily ever after and moving on. I mean, I think, um, you know, one develops a greater understanding and, um, and, and is better equipped to act, but um, it's just another part of a, the ongoing story in, in one's life, I think. And I suppose, you know, whatever the, the ending is, and I guess it's it, it's not entirely ambiguous. I mean, I think the reader can probably project that ending forward quite easily. But mm. um, whatever it is, you know, his daughter won't be coming back. And so that, that grief probably won't ever disappear for Mark. Well, yes, well, I think that's right. I mean, uh, and I think that's true of most people. You know, there's this sort of notion that somehow one gets over grief and, 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 you know, you wake up one day and it's not there anymore. Um, I know from my own personal experience that's, that's not the case. Um, uh, but I think, um, you know... And I suppose the guilt remains as well because, you know, maybe it lessens in, in this instance, but, you know, still as a parent, uh, I think guilt goes hand in hand with parenting anyway, so... Um, yeah, I know, think that's right, and I think Martin, you know, discovers that perhaps he wasn't as... Uh, responsible for his daughter's death as, as, he, as he thought for a long time but um, I think it, it, it begs the question really still about um, you know he, he nevertheless um, you know was, uh, was, 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 was around and supposed to be looking after you know his daughter at the time she died so um, Turned his head away. It, it meant, meant to be protecting her. Mm. Now um, tell me a little bit about the we, we had a very brief chat before we started about the interaction between your day job and uh, and the writing work. Um, mm. Do you find that that working as a lawyer um, inspires you, or does it compete with your work? Do you, do you see an interaction at all? Um, I, I I don't really. Someone asked me this question recently, and um, I, I don't. And someone someone said to me, you know, why don't you write a novel about a lawyer? Because that's what you know. Christian's <laughs> <laughs> already done that, but yes, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Seems to be a, a very financial formula. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I see them quite separate in a way. I mean, you know, the world of the law is a very rational, logical um, world, and um, uh, you know, writing uh, fiction obviously is is is, is quite the, quite the opposite. And um, it's a it's a breath of fresh air for me. I mean, while I enjoy, you know, still enjoy various aspects of, of the legal practice. Um, you know, I enjoy being able to, you know, as it were, rip off the rip off the suit and tie and um, sit at the desk and um, you know write whatever I whatever I want, whatever comes into my head. Sure. Now, um, all those bright crosses, as I mentioned, is your debut novel. Um, mm. Has the publication changed the way you now view yourself as a writer? <laughs> yes. Well, it's 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 very interesting because I think uh, um, you know before one's published, um, you have dreams and fantasies about um, about being published but I never quite believe it's it's going to happen um, and suddenly um, you know you wake up one morning and there's your books in your bookshop and there's people like you asking <laughs> interviewing me about the book and speaking publicly and um, one suddenly has to um, you know wear this uh, wear this label as as, as writer and um, it's uh, it's interesting I think and perhaps ties back into the the theme of the novel and Martin's sort of sense of um, you know, feeling slightly, slightly fraudulent. Um, you know, you think uh, oh, people are calling me a writer. I've got a book there in the bookshop. Um, but um, and I think it, it possibly um, it carries with it a certain kind of um, responsibility. I think, um, but um, and it's it's quite um, 
yeah, it's a bit of trepidation, I think, in realizing that the the words that you've written are not just sitting on your computer and um, or in your head, but they're out there uh, in the world for, for everyone to read and judge and scrutinize and probably make you know judgments about about you as a person and and, and so on. And and do you find that people you know tend to look to you as an expert now? Um, you know, talk to me about the state of Fiji and and so on. Yeah, that certainly happened, and um, and 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 about gambling and 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 so on. But um, you know, I'm uh, I don't sort of set myself up as a uh, an expert on on gambling at all. Um, I've done some research. I had my own experience a, a long time ago of um, of, of of gambling. Um, and yes, you know, I've set a novel partly in Fiji, but. Um, um, I'm, I'm not an expert in Fijian politics or history or culture. Sure, and, and it's a novel. Uh, it's not a, a non-fiction. Sorry. And it's a novel, of course. It's not uh, a non-fiction. That's right. That's and, 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 and I'm certainly not trying to tell the story of Fiji. I, I don't think I, I could as a, as a non-Fijian. Um, this is really, you know, Martin's story. It's not from, not the story of Fiji. Right. Now, so tell me, um, what's next? What, what's on the on the cards? Uh, yes, well, um, someone asked me the other day, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I'm working on my anxiety about uh, the publication of that's this That's right, spending every hour promoting your existing book. Um, but yeah, yes, right. uh, what, uh, what would you like to be working on if you're not working on something new? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm working on some fragments at the moment. Um, the way this novel came together was some various fragments. I, I just sort of write bits and pieces and then play with some ideas and then uh, hope, uh, hope to God that, um, you know, uh, after a while, it, it it falls into some kind of cohesive whole or or some kind of story and and, and themes that I, I can just settle into and want to make the um, you know, the the commitment to put in the, the hours and the hard yards with. So um, I'm, I'm working on um, something at the moment that's um, you know talked about my anxiety, my anxiety but um, I, I'm very interested in the idea of anxiety. So I think that will be a, a theme in, in the next one. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll look for it. Um, okay. Uh, we'll keep our eyes out. Thank you very much for that, um, Thank you Rob. Very much. And uh, we're we're pretty much out of time. I've got six seconds to close. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening, both those of you turning tuning in live and those listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscri- subscribe and download the shows to your favorite portal. And um, that's iTunes, My Yahoo, NewsGator, Blogline, etc. Just drop by the show at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash compulsive reader and click on the appropriate button. Our next show will feature Helen Townsend, author of Above the Starry Frame, and that'll be in a month. I'll be scheduling it and sending out news shortly. Um, and if we have the technology ready by then, you might even be able to get in and call, call in and chat with Helen yourself. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ross. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Maggie. All right. Speak to you soon. Bye.